Luke chapter 23 and verse 26. Luke 23 and verse 26. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. The Lord has been tried and convicted, being condemned to execution on a cross. The whole legal process has taken at the most six hours. How shameful to deliberate so hastily over the justice or otherwise of taking away a man's life. The evidence against whom was so utterly flimsy. This reveals the outright malice motivating the Lord's prosecutors. This shows the power of Satan in the hearts of men when the gospel is proclaimed. Now we know from John's gospel that our Lord carried his own cross initially. The two pieces of timber would not have been light. Matthew tells us that our Lord was scourged, whipped, before being led away to execution. Pontius Pilate allowed this public beating He knew that the Lord was going to be crucified anyway. So why did he allow this additional piece of malice against the Lord's own person? The only reason can be that it was a craven concession to the malice of the crowd. In other words, Pilate allowed popular opinion to sway him. The physical beating would obviously have weakened our Lord physically. And this was followed by mockery and further physical abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers. So the Lord's exhaustion is doubtless why someone from the crowd is now conscripted to carry the cross for him. It would certainly have been beneath the dignity of a Roman soldier to carry the cross of a convicted Jewish criminal. Therefore, a man from the crowd called Simon is ordered to do the task. Simon was from 
Cyrene, a Greek-speaking region in North Africa. It corresponds to modern-day Tripoli in Libya, uh, where, of course, Islam holds sway. Uh, But uh, in these days, many Jews had settled in Cyrene. Now, Mark's Gospel tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. The clear implication uh, being that these sons were, in fact, Christian believers. We do not know whether Simon himself was a disciple of the Lord, but why, of all the men whom the soldiers could have chosen to carry the Lord's cross, was this particular one singled out in the providence of God? This certainly suggests that Simon was a true believer and that he was granted the privilege of helping the Lord in his great weakness and humiliation. The fact that we are told in this verse that Simon was apprehended by the soldiers as he came into the city from the countryside means that he had certainly not been among the crowd shouting out for the Lord's crucifixion. Now we read in verse 27, And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed, and lamented him. A large crowd then now follows the Lord to watch the public execution. We we know in many ages of history, public executions uh, have always been public spectacles gazed upon by many people. Now we are told in verse 27 that many women Uh, though not necessarily the Lord's followers, are grieving from a sense of common humanity as they observe the Lord's obvious physical sufferings and realise that he is going to a cruel death. These women may have heard his teaching and have witnessed his miracles. They know that this man is no common criminal. They may indeed be reflecting that some kind of great injustice is taking place before their eyes. But it also seems from what the Lord says to them that they are not those who have actually put their faith in him. It is also possible that their audible wailing uh, was in fact the normal cultural practice for Jewish women to engage in in the presence of death. And this again suggests that their lamenting was not necessarily a profession of faith. We know that because he subsequently addresses these women as the daughters of Jerusalem as opposed to the daughters of Galilee that they were not the faithful women who followed him from Galilee. 
Nevertheless, it is to be hoped that in many of them there was indeed genuine sympathy and distress for one who was unjustly suffering. Along with a serious reflection which would ultimately lead to a trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for who he really is. But let us see what the Lord says to these women in verse 28. Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now our Lord knew that he was in his Father's perfect will even though he was going to his death. However, the the people of Jerusalem, as represented by these wailing women, had set themselves implacably against God's will. God's will in sending this man Jesus into the world to be the king of Israel. This man is the one who has been promised to the people of Jerusalem throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The perfunctory wailing of the women or even their genuine sympathy for human suffering was actually not enough. They did not understand the situation. They and their menfolk have to repent of all sin. And they have to realise that this is the Son of God in their midst. Even unrepentant sinners are often not so hardened that they cannot show sympathy with those reduced to great extremities. After all, all people have been made in the image of God even though now miserably fallen from that image. Yet it is the case that, generally speaking, the people of Jerusalem, immersed as they were in man-pleasing religion, rejected the Lord and his message of the need for a fundamental inward change. If anyone was to enter into the kingdom of God. Back in chapter 13 of this gospel, and verse 34, the Lord said this, Luke 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. And so the religious establishment of most of the people did not receive the Lord when he came amongst them, even though he was the promised Messiah. Therefore, despite all his personal physical agonies, and above all his spiritual agonies, the Lord now turns to the daughters of Jerusalem 
and declares God's word to them. Apart from his words from the cross, this is the Lord's last sermon upon the earth. It is short but utterly incisive. Why at this stage does the Lord address these women rather than others? Probably because they were the closest physically to him. And possibly also because as those mourning him, they were less hardened than the many who had cried out to Pilate for the Lord to be crucified. So in our Lord's final sermon upon this earth, what does he say? Verse 28. Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. These last words of teaching and counsel before the crucifixion are a warning of coming judgment. The Lord's last words are not, I love everyone, no matter what they do. His last words are, weep for yourselves and weep for your children. He declares, I do not need your tears. For I remain in the Father's perfect will and am accomplishing his work of salvation. You should, however, weep for yourselves and for your children. Now these particular women who have chosen to engage in public mourning for our Lord represent the people of the city as a whole the religious establishment, and indeed they, they represent the nation generally. This nation has rejected its true king in the line of David, the one who would redeem them from their sins. And so the Lord is speaking in the context of a national rejection of his truth. Now, when people keep on sinning, it is inevitable that their children are also caught up in the earthly judgments which may follow. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Parents who reject Christ should remember that. They're bringing earthly judgments upon their children. The people should be weeping, not for the Lamb of God going to the slaughter in the fulfilment of the scriptures, but for all their own hard-hearted rebellion against him. The Christian gospel is a call to weep before it is a call to rejoice. 
And a church which wants to avoid all persecution leaves out the weeping and goes straight to the rejoicing. We first of all have to call upon sinners to weep over their sins before we can offer them the benefits of the gospel. James 4, verse 8. James 4, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. But there can be no lifting up until there is first a weeping over sin. Followed by heartfelt repentance from sin. But what's the attitude of modern society? You must not tell sinners to repent, they find it offensive. And if you keep on telling them to repent, we're going to arrest you. That's how modern society deals with the mode of gospel preaching which the Lord is employing here. Now, these women of Jerusalem were mourning, but not with a view to repentance. So the Lord says, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul says this. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world worketh death. Death. These women of Jerusalem were manifesting a sorrow of this world over a man suffering greatly and going to his death. But they were not examining their own hearts and exhibiting sorrow over their own sin. They needed to focus more upon the deep-seated wickedness which was causing this event to happen now in modern Britain you're not allowed to talk about wickedness in the human heart because people find it offensive and so we are told by policemen it's against the law to offend anyone but we cannot preach the gospel without offending anyone Because you cannot come to Jesus Christ unless you are first told that you are a sinner and you deserve God's wrath. And the gospel preacher declares that message out of love for the sinner. And that's what the world cannot understand. The Lord says in verse 29, For behold, the days are coming, 
in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. And so the Lord warns the women of Jerusalem that horrific calamity is coming upon their city, such that all that are mothers amongst them would wish that they had never been mothers. That's what the Lord says. And this time of coming tragedy will occur within a generation. So it involves those who are hearing the Lord right now. Our Lord is in fact repeating what he had declared when he wept over the city as we read back in chapter 19. Uh, Luke 19 verse 42. Luke 19 verse 42. The Lord there explains uh, that judgment is coming upon the city of Jerusalem. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This is how the Lord uses his last opportunity upon the earth to preach a sermon and expand God's word. It is remarkable how many intelligent and well-educated people today frequently tell us that Jesus Christ only ever spoke about love. It is a complete falsehood. The climax of our Lord's public ministry was his foretelling the utter devastation of Jerusalem in the wrath of God. The Lord's protection was being taken away because the people, through the hardness of their hearts, had refused to recognise the true source of their well-being their peace. The Prince of Peace had come into their midst, but they refused to recognise him because of the sinfulness of their hearts and because they were wedded to this world. The coming judgment will be horrific indeed. Verse 30. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Now, people often argue you have a message of judgment in the Old Testament, but you have a message of love in the New Testament. 
Well, here we are in the New Testament, and what is the Lord doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, Verse 30 is a quotation from Hosea chapter 10 and verse 8, which we read earlier on. That passage in Hosea describes God's judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel some 700 years earlier. The judgment came because of the nation's sin and false worship at the altar of idols located on tops of hills. And so the Lord is referring back to the Old Testament with which his hearers would be familiar. Uh, So let us look again at that passage which the Lord is quoting, Hosea 10 Verse 8, the high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Then verse 13 of Hosea 10, ye have ploughed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies. Because thou didst trust in thy way, in the multitude of thy mighty men. Now, the word Avon, A V E N, there in Hosea 10, verse 8, it's the Hebrew word for iniquity. And so the Lord is talking about the iniquity of the people, the high places of Avon they were engaging in idolatrous worship in the land of Israel. And the invasion of Israel by the Assyrians, which Hosea was foretelling, was an historical example of God removing his protection from a wicked nation. Now, modern Britain needs to wake up to this reality. If a nation rebels against him, God will remove his protection from that nation. So if a nation keeps on arresting Christian preachers for declaring biblical truth, what is God going to do to that nation? Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. The destruction of Israel would be so severe that the people would cry out to the mountains to bring them immediate death by collapsing on top of them. Well, referring to that historical event, as foretold in Hosea, the Lord here declares in Luke 23 to his own generation that a similar cry will be offered up to the hills and mountains by a desperate people. Fall on us, cover us, protect us from the wrath of God. And so the Lord was foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now the same words are also used by the Apostle John, In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16. 
Again, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. But we must also, of course, remember that the destruction of Jerusalem typifies national judgments in any generation and it is also a prophetic foreshadowing of the Lord's final return in judgment on the great last day. The Lord says in verse 31, For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? The period of our Lord's public ministry is likened to a green tree. Now in a green tree, there is rising sap and much life. The Lord's public ministry has been a wonderful day of grace for Israel. Her king had come to them declaring, I am come that men might have life. The people were living in what can be described metaphorically as the period of a green tree. A period where there is potential for great life. It was a time of salvation freely offered. The day of a green tree. Most, however, have abused this opportunity. They have rejected the Saviour. They wanted a convicted terrorist set free instead. And so they prefer their sins. The Lord declares that the day of a green tree will become the day of the dry tree. When there is no longer any potential for life, but just dead wood fit for burning. Having rejected him who is the true vine, the people will become as useless dry wood lying around upon the ground ready to be gathered up and burnt. And our Lord used the same metaphor in John 15, verse 6. John 15, verse 6. He said, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burnt. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, as we have said, foreshadows the Lord's return to this earth as judge of all flesh. What a day of the dry tree that will be for every single non-believer. No further opportunity for repentance. How readily combustible will be a sin-laden, Christ-rejecting world. But of course, God also judges nations in time before the final return. So what is going to happen to our nation? A nation which allows heart-beating babies to be destroyed in the womb. 
a nation which promotes immoral lifestyles among school children, a nation which arrests Christian preachers, completely ignoring its own constitution. And so we need to warn our society of imminent judgment. But we can still go out there tomorrow and preach the gospel. And we've got to do that. There is still opportunity for men to repent. We must not allow the world to intimidate us with all its fashionable philosophies about not offending people. Now, despite all these warnings of judgment, we also know that the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But men will only come to repentance if we go and tell them they must repent. They will not come to repentance if the churches stay confined to their four walls, worried about offending anybody. The Lord says, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. Here is the answer to the many who foolishly say today that Jesus never judges anyone. Let us go back to that quotation from James 4 and to the heart of our gospel message. James 4 Verse 8, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. That is the message we must declare. We have to go out into the public places where crowds gather, and we must pray that the government does not stop crowds from gathering, and we must declare this precious truth. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. We go and preach the offensive gospel because we love our neighbour and do not wish them to go to hell. So no one dare accuse us of not being loving. But we're not going to compromise whatever the police might do. So may the Lord bless the preaching of the gospel and may we go forth and declare that gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.